Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Paul Letters was a regular on Noreen Mir's Lunchtime, the 123 show, talking about local and world history before he headed down under with his family to Australia. He was a history teacher here at King George V School, or KG5, and is the author of two novels, the latest of which is called The Slightest Chance, set in Hong Kong during the Second World War. Paul has based one of his lead characters on a woman civilian prisoner of war here who managed to escape shortly after being interned. Before he headed to Australia, I joined Paul to chat about his novel, The Slightest Chance. Well, it's a wartime action thriller with a love story in it as well. And it covers escapes, it covers covert operations for, by Z-Force, which uh, I have not, I've not made up any of this. There's all the real <laughs> names. And they were operating behind the Japanese lines during the Battle of Hong Kong and doing some incredibly daring uh, missions. It features the, the famous uh, Admiral Chan Chak, who ended up leading the great escape out of Hong Kong. It also features the only female to escape from Japanese captivity through the whole of World War II in Hong Kong, Gwen Priestwood. So I've changed her surname, but in terms of her war, apart from her love life, everything in the novel is basically you know, her experience. <laughs> so what do you call her in the novel? I call her Gwen Harmison, just so that I can alter her love life really but uh, and some of the people that she interacts with and so on you know, are, are fictional characters so there are a number of non-fiction characters in my book but the leading characters are, are generally composites of people that I've read about and she wrote a memoir of her time in Hong Kong during the war so that's been incredibly useful. So who was Gwen Priestwood? Uh, well, she was really a, a housewife who ma married when she was 19 and then became estranged from her husband and so she was in her late 20s by the time the Battle of Hong Kong uh, began and yeah, she was looking to, to get back home I think or at least to get out of Hong Kong either to North America or back to the UK and then the, the battle sort of put, put an end to that and yeah she ended up in Stanley camp in the internment camp but not for too long because she was a very determined character and what she sought to do was not just escape for the sake of escaping, but she wanted the wider world to know what the conditions were like for internees and as much as they could say about the prisoners of war in the military camps as well because they were hearing things and messages were coming in to, to Stanley. And, of course, there's a lack of medicine in Stanley that the, the Japanese authorities were, were not allowing in even when it you know, was being provided specifically for the, the hospital there in the camp. And, of course, the massacre as well at Stanley and other atrocities, which Gwen found out about once she, once she got to, to Camp Stanley. So she made it her mission not just to escape, but working with a, a, another guy, and they made it their mission to take information, lists of who was in Stanley, lists of who had been killed in atrocities before going into Stanley, and they wanted that information to get back to the UK government. So, yeah, for various reasons, so that the families would know whether their loved ones were alive or not. And also, so that really, from Gwen's point of view, that people had a sense of what they were fighting for in this part of the world. And some of the information that she provided ended up forming a part of a speech by the British Foreign Secretary, Anthony Eden, and being read in Parliament, and, and some of that I've quoted word for word in the book. So this is direct connection with what she achieved, then has an influence actually on the government and, and perhaps in their, in their responses and their policies. 
So the Japanese military invade Hong Kong on December the 8th, 1941. So Hong Kong is then occupied for three years, eight months, and, and Gwen and many others have to live through that. So she was interned for how long? Well, she was interned in January 1942, and then she escaped in March, so only a couple of months. Yeah, a lot of the, I mean, any of the successful escapes, they tend to be really in the early times when there's sort of probably still a sense of chaos and not a complete knowledge of numbers. Yeah, and also the, you know, the the perimeter of the camp was less well secured in those in those early months. I'm talking with Paul Letters, historian, history teacher, and novelist. This is in fact your second novel. The title of the novel is The Slightest Chance. So, why did you choose that? It's part of a loose series. There's two books so far, and the first one being A Chance Kill, which is set in Europe, again, based around real history and and spies and escapes and and, and things that really happened. And there's a slight overlap with one of the main characters from that first novel, A Chance Kill, popping up quite late on in The Slightest Chance. So the, the two books do stand alone. You do not need to read the first one to understand the second one so I became aware that I was dealing with kind of among other things matters of chance and and that's why I thought that word's going to stay in the title through this series and just I was fascinated by what makes certain people especially civilians escape whereas thousands of others in Stanley who, who don't try to and the same in my first novel and what makes ordinary civilians sign up to in effect be spies and so that that whole kind of chance seem to cover quite a lot of that as well as you've got to have the luck to survive through these these sorts of ordeals uh, but there's specifically the slightest chance well that's a play on Churchill's words so he said actually some months before the Battle of Hong Kong he said if Hong Kong were to be attacked by the Japanese then there would be not the slightest chance of, of holding it or relieving uh, Hong Kong so I played on that uh, because uh, my lead characters, so many of them, they know that they're against the odds, but they're doing extraordinary things anyway. I mean, to operate behind the Japanese lines during any battle would be hard, but during a battle that your side is losing fast and you're retreating so quickly in that two and a half weeks period of the battle, and obviously you soon know that you're going to lose that battle whatever you do, but they kept doing these things, extraordinary missions. And also the slightest chance for, at least for individuals, in how they would survive the war and what they would contribute in doing that against the odds. So there were people who saw a positive side, a slim chance, but they still pursued it in a a positive way. Yeah, there are some quite extraordinary characters in non-fiction that you've included in your work of fiction that existed here during the Second World War and the Japanese military occupation of Hong Kong. And these include that we'll, we'll discuss is Admiral Chan Chak with his wooden leg, this escape from Hong Kong using motorboats and then this trek through China, and also Morris Cohen, or Two-Gun Cohen, who was a, a great character in himself. So actually it was rich with it. So I can see why you would would, as a as a novelist say well you know that this is rich with history and yeah. also color but also for me having met uh, survivors in civilian sense those that went through malnutrition ex-POWs ex-soldiers from that period who fought here I do feel that it's a very important story to be told it works well both if one wants to read it in a history capacity like you do as a history teacher or as a novel and the fact that you've got all this daring do and adventure and a love story so were you quite a romantic yourself 
Ah, uh, that's a good question. I hadn't really thought about that. I suppose a, a romantic in terms of like the the history and the daring do and so on. Yes, that appeals to me. In terms of the love story, in terms of the numbers of words, the love story in the slightest chance <laughs> is it's not a huge element of the novel, but it's always there. And I suppose it was important to me to show my key characters connected to other loved ones rather than just being isolated on their own and it obviously brings in thoughts of a future and what's going to happen if I make it through this and it's also partly a motivation and by the end of the novel I like to think this will surprise people but I think by the end of the novel they're going to look back and think actually that was about, that novel was about enduring love as much as it was uh, World War Two. but I, I like to think I do that without spending tens of thousands of words on the romance it gets to the action it gets to the history and the adventurous side of it and because like you said that there was so much rich history there i didn't need to make up any escape attempts or, or or significant incidents i just could use what was there and gwen who we were talking about earlier is a non-fiction character okay i changed her surname so i can alter her love life a little bit but everything that she does in the novel was what gwen priestwood you know did in real life in terms of you know, the the escapes and what she's trying to achieve and same with that of course admiral chan chak and he did a lot during the actual battle before the escape one thing that comes up in the novel is the role of those, what they called fifth columnists or people who were working for the Japanese. The, the, the Japanese, because they'd taken over parts of China uh, as well as Taiwan, of course, they'd found that some Chinese people would collaborate with them and so they sent them into Hong Kong to spy before the battle. And so, for example, during the battle, once the Japanese had taken Kowloon and the British side had retreated to Hong Kong Island, there were signals being flashed from the hillside of the peak across the harbour to signal where British gun emplacements were. And when I say British, I mean, of course, there were Canadian, Indian, Hong Kong troops as well, but the British size. And so where the gun emplacements were, and the Japanese would then, would of course, fire their shells in that direction. Admiral Chan Chak went round, sometimes with just, just one guy, his, his right-hand man, and himself. And, of course, he had one leg, but he would just go, go into a room and, and shoot up the room once he knew what they were up to uh, other times you know prisoners would be taken information would be extracted from them and then they'd be taken down to execution alley just uh behind where lane crawford used to be off um off pedder street and that was an impromptu ex execution zone it wasn't just admiral chan chak doing that of course the british were, were using it and, and various others there was also the, the the issue of the triads so increasingly as the battle went on the triads were seeing you know britain was going to lose this battle and of course it was chinese people more than anyone who were getting shelled and bombed by the japanese particularly again once the british side retreated to hong kong island and so there were some triad gangs who were increasingly either working for the japanese or just being a pain to the british by stealing or sabotaging their vehicles and so on and admiral chan chak got involved uh, there and began to recruit at first just a small number and paid them a, a small amount to basically work for the British side. Admiral Chan Chak himself was a Chinese nationalist so he didn't want Hong Kong to be taken over by the Japanese or obviously China for that matter and things came to a head though when there was a plan that was discovered by Admiral Chan Chak and Chinese and British spies that the triads had a plan during the battle to execute, to, to murder every single Caucasian that they could find in Hong Kong. And this 
it was kept secret for many years afterwards but there was a meeting the police obviously found out about it and they managed to persuade the top couple of hundred triad leaders to come in for a meeting a couple of meetings but uh, the first meeting was a smaller scale but then they got lower but they managed to persuade them to bring more people to a second meeting it was held in a, the Cecil Hotel which is no longer there it's in central was in central and this is in the middle of the battle so the, the Hong Kong police, the British-run Hong Kong police, are sending out minibuses to pick up triad gang members, leaders uh, at least, uh, and bring them to a hotel whilst the Japanese are firing shells and, and dropping bombs. And they had this meeting with police leaders and, and one or two high up in the sort of covert operations side for, for the British, where they were trying to persuade the triads not to go through with their plan. It was due the next day. They had a time. They had a list of locations, including sort of police stations, but including hospitals and anywhere where there would be a concentration of Caucasians. So from the triads' point of view, they wanted the battle to stop. They wanted Chinese people to no longer be killed by Japanese shelling. And the British were refusing to surrender, even though it was clear t- to everyone that the British side were going to lose. So from the triad's point of view, they're trying to save Chinese lives. And if that's going to cost a couple of thousand British and others lives to save tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Chinese, then to them it it kind of made sense. In the end, this meeting went on long into the night, but in the end, the triads were bought off. And then we don't know for sure the precise amount, and we don't know all of the details, but there was a a middleman who was a triad leader from Shanghai who'd come down to, to Hong Kong when the Japanese came to, to, to Shanghai and he was involved with Admiral Chan Chak in brokering this deal and we know a, an amount was offered by the British which was pretty much all they could afford in terms of payment in advance and the triads wanted more so a deal was made to pay a lot more after the war so what was interesting is the triads were banking on the British winning of course they're not really banking on the British they're banking on the Chinese and the Americans as much as anyone of actually winning the war so in the long run they would get their big payout which we have no evidence for sure what happened after the war but we've also got no reason to believe they didn't get paid Interesting. I yeah. didn't know about this whole triad connection at all. Yeah. Um, so yes, and, and also there's the, the, the dire execution alley, as you say, these things that go on during this occupation. Going back to Gwen, she wrote a diary, or she wrote her own book in 1944, and you were able to find a copy of that at the University of Hong Kong. Yes, they were very good to me there. It's not supposed to you know, be accessible, really, <laughs> but they were very good to me. Let me spent a lot of time with it and that book through barbed wire was by Gwen Priestwood was published in 1944 so during the occupation published in the UK but still during the occupation of Hong Kong so she was careful not to name names of people and places which made it more difficult but also quite interesting (laughs) to to track her roots but cross-referencing that with other reports such as those of the British Army Aid Group, the, the covert spy agency led by Colonel Lindsay Ride, their reports, uh, obviously highly confidential at, at the time, most of those are now available. There's one or two which will have a Ministry of Defence stamp on them and won't be available for another few years. But uh, Elizabeth Ride, Colonel Ride's daughter, has been incredibly um, active in protecting those archives, in organising them and getting them to Hong Kong U Library but also to an archive in Hong Hong. And so both of those places have been very useful as well as the National Archives in the UK 
at tracing Gwen's movements and also the operations of the BAAG, who really, many of the agents who were in Z Force, which was was set up before the war, behind the lines, covert operatives, as a uh, army operatives, military guys, um, many of them ended up in the BAAG, headquartered in, in Free China, but running spies, Chinese and British, back into Hong Kong during the occupation bringing in medical supplies for example setting up an escape route which was in its early days in March 1942 when Gwen escaped but in the months after that there would be certainly you know, houses and a bit of a trail that would go through the hills at the back of Kowloon over to Sai Kung and then usually across uh, Mers Bay by boat obviously and, and then on land through up to 800 kilometres in, in mainland China yeah, the BAAG was an ex- extraordinary movement and very brave and set up by Lindsay Wright. He's a medical doctor, among other many other things, and uh, also post-war would become a vice-chancellor of the University of Hong Kong. And he, in fact, manages to escape, well, within hours or within the first day. Of, yeah, of from, the, from Argyle Street, the officers' camp on Argyle Street in Kowloon, yeah. Yeah, he uses the the turmoil, the chaos. They haven't done the numbers yet. And and he moves very quickly, uh, gets up, as you say, into Free China and then organises this this network of spies who come down and some didn't survive, some were tortured and and some died. But others, they're using it as as this route to go back up. And what always astonishes me, digressing slightly, is that you'd think that was enough, that what had occurred in Hong Kong, you'd you'd fought or you'd survived here. Mm. And then some of these names then crop up in Europe they just carry yes. on <laughs> yeah it's all it's all part of uh, the special operations executive which was the uh, the British spy network which was mainly operating in Europe and so out in in China and Hong Kong there because there was more distance there was a bit more freedom organizationally but but there's still that overlap and yeah these these characters just many of them you, you might say go looking for trouble and <laughs> you mentioned two gun Cohen earlier he wasn't directly in the BAAG but he seemed to be on the payroll and was you know was helping them out and he had had you know an adventurous life around China ending up as Sun Yat-sen's President Sun Yat-sen's bodyguard and, and a general in the Chinese Nationalist Army before yeah, he came to Hong Kong and and uh, he, when the battle was coming to Hong Kong Island, he, it seems he had an opportunity to escape and to go with Admiral Chan Chak on the motor torpedo boats. But of course, he wanted to fight on. So we, we don't have a record of exactly how that went down. But he did survive the Battle of Hong Kong. And then he ends up in, in Stanley Camp as well. Yes, that, that was Stanley Camp was an, an entire colourful yes. array of people. <laughs> yes. I'm talking to Paul Letters, a historian, history teacher and novelist. He's written his second novel, The Slightest Chance, which is about uh, Gwen Priestwood or Gwen Harmison, as she appears in the book. She's a central character among, well, there's about two to three I would say are lead characters yes that's right so the other two the male lead he's called Dominic Southerly and he's a British uh, civil servant here well a- Anglo-Australian actually half Australian half British and has been a, kind of a bit bored in his job so he seeks adventures on the weekends this is before the battle joining the the, the volunteers the Hong Kong volunteers and then from that 
um, going into Z Force, which again was for most of the operatives before the battle, was a part-time thing. So he was learning covert warfare, and then the, and the battle starts, and he ends up taking a pseudonym, Max, and he kind of fancies himself as uh, as a cool operative and someone who you know, knows what he's doing, and and someone who's enjoying war more than he did working in an office before beforehand. So he kind of sticks with this kind of Max persona. And uh, he meets Gwen as as Max as as well. So there's also there's another theme in the book, kind of playing on the can you can you be someone you're not, especially in a time of war, and, and what what might the consequences of that be in the long run. The third main character, Chester Drake, a British father, Chinese mother, so a Eurasian guy, and he's you know, quite quite a mysterious character seems quite a low-key guy but increasingly you'll see him doing surprising and extraordinary things uh, in the war and uh, Max has a bit of an antagonistic relationship with him but that's probably more to do with Gwen and uh, their, <laughs> their kind of rivalry there Another non-fiction character to mention is Kiyoshi Wantanabe Uncle John he was known as so this is a Japanese uh, interpreter but he's, in the, he's been drafted uh, he's from Hiroshima, and he's been drafted, of course, as, as almost everyone was, uh, males of a certain age, into the Japanese military. And because he could speak English, he'd spent some time studying in America, uh, he was sent to Hong Kong as an interpreter and was often at different points uh, in the in different camps, but including in Stanley Camp during the war. And he was a very kindly man. He was, he was a, a Christian man. He'd been learning, uh, studying for the priesthood. And he went out of his way, risked his life, to supply items of food and medicine to people in need within the camps and to, you know, to smuggle that into the camps. And he certainly would have lost his life had he been fa- found out by some of the uh, more hard-lying Japanese. So, yeah, he's a really interesting guy who I try to feature as historically accurately as I, as I can. What actually happened to him? Well, after the war, he went back to Japan and his whole family had been killed by the atomic bomb. So he you know, he worked and lived in, in Japan for some decades after that. Uh, they, there was a, a British TV programme called This Is Your Life, which screened when I was a kid. And, and, and so it started in the 1960s and he featured on that. So at some point he must have been either taken to Britain or I'm not sure if they, if they went to him actually but he was recognised 20 odd years after the war for what he did but it must have been a hard life without his children and, and his wife who were killed by the atomic bomb yeah awful but I think it is good yes to acknowledge his courage and, and humanity your novel so you, you're able to use these various situations real life situations that occurred in the second world war in terms of your writing i mean what what made you decide to as a history teacher you could have also written a history book so what what do you like about using the format of the novel well i suppose there's a couple of things that come to mind there first of all as a history teacher i've already written a, a whole unit which we teach at my school at K- kg5 about hong kong in world war Two. so i kind of feel like i've written up a non-fiction version <laughs> of it uh, anyway, but yeah, still maybe one day um, could could go into a non-fiction book. But of course, with, on the fiction side of it, because you can make these composite characters, you get to choose and get get them involved in all these most exciting elements. So where the fiction comes into the book is that there's times where my lead characters will be 
particularly the male actually the Gwen character she is involved in real life and everything that I put her in but the male characters it's more there would have been different agents on different operations whereas I'll have you know one or two of these agents and they're always at these key operations so you can play around with it like that you're still respecting the history but you're getting it across I think in maybe in a more exciting way and you can be a bit more linear about it you know the sort of beginning middle end side of things and so yeah it's it's just fun that you can putting words in people's mouths as well is is, is fun <laughs> developing those characters we, you know, so they've got d- different dialogue that you, you distinguish between the different characters you know, ideally even if I didn't say Chester said or Max said or Gwen said just by what they said you you will know who it was and so that is a creative side to that that takes me beyond you know history and non-fiction My thanks to Paul Letters talking there about his novel The Slightest Chance, which is published by Blacksmith Books. Paul Letters and his son James also have a popular history podcast, which is suitable for children and adults alike. My son James and I run a podcast series called Dad and Me Love History. If you've got a smartphone, you will have a free podcast app that comes with the phone. Open that app, type in Dad and Me, that's probably enough, but Dad and Me Love History... And you can click subscribe. It's completely free, of course. No payment at any point. And if you click subscribe, it will download all the future episodes and you can download the past episodes. And we've done 14 today. Hong Kong history, China, but also we've done the American Civil War. We've done why was the Roman army so awesome? We've done the most important question in history. That's the title of the episode. But when you start listening to it, you'll hear the key question there is who invented ice cream? So the <laughs> history of ice cream has got quite an ancient history. We've done the Russian Revolution and we've been lucky enough to, to, to go to some of these places. So some of our recordings are are from the actual place and we're interviewing people there, historians, sometimes tour guides. Uh, we interviewed a professional, at least semi-professional knight uh, in our episode, Who Wants to Be a Knight? And it turns out there's this whole international circuit of knights. They go around the world and it's not choreographed. They're doing sword fighting and jousting. And when they win, they win money. So it's all, you know, they, they want to win. There's no choreographing. It's like a kind of a league system, you know, point system of these guys semi-professionally and I had no idea I was a history teacher in the UK for years that this was going on this this happens in the UK but also America and Australia and other places around the world so yeah we were able to interview some of these knights which which was fantastic I also went to a World War Two sort of reconstruction in the UK. What was it like to live through an air raid during World War Two? And uh, so there's people in the UK, thousands of them, who collect original objects from World War Two, air raid wardens' uniform and helmet, as well as different armaments. And then on weekends, in, in the summer time at least, set up their stalls with other enthusiasts, and then they play they play it out in character. So you feel like you're interviewing someone who's there at the time. And we found someone who was brilliant at, you know, at doing that, came out with some brilliant stories. So, yeah, we've covered a, a lot. We've been picked up by one Canadian radio station uh, in Vancouver who's broadcasting our episodes. And I just got an email today from someone who works for the Board of Education in an American state, Indiana. And they've put together a list of, of best podcasts for kids and families. And there's ones by NPR, like Wow in the World, it's an American one, which is brilliant, we listen to. And there's one by ABC Radio called Short and Curly, which we also uh, love. <laughs> and then ours is in there as well. So it was really pleased to be included in that, that list. So oh, Well done. So Dad and me love history. Yeah. 
yeah you can listen not only on your phone but also directly from our website dadandmelovehistory.com or you can listen on spotify as well and if you like what you're hearing really appreciate any reviews and also sharing it it's free remember so uh, just just sharing it with friends would be great and also if you do end up reading the slightest chance uh, reviews would would help a, you know, a small author and a small publisher like blacksmith books for us to keep doing what we're doing i look forward to listening in to the podcast by paul and james letters called dad and me love history Next week, I head to the New Territories to join a group of Waitau ladies and hear the wedding laments that were sung by village women as they prepared in the seven days before becoming a bride and leaving behind family and friends to enter a new life. I'll also be hearing about hacker weaving and how that tradition of weaving is being taught to a younger generation. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. (laughs) 